Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. It is my pleasure to be joined today by Elaine, and she is here to share her story about her experience on antidepressants, uh, Lexapro in particular, and the really uh, life-changing impact that they've had um, over her decades of use. And so, uh, Elaine, welcome, and thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Um, so I, I guess I'll start with where the medication started. Um Perfect. I was in therapy probably, I was probably 19 or 20 where I was seeing a therapist. I had had some really difficult times with um, my mom and my family growing up, very challenging. Um, it definitely was it turned into by the time I was about 15 where I was running away from home. I was institutionalized. Um, I was sent away to a very um, abusive rehabilitation center. Um, So I went through a lot with that. Uh, The rehabilitation center was straight incorporated. Um, It was shut down for, they had a lot of legal problems for abuse. Um, A lot of kids committed suicide out of there. My parents, when I got out of there, would not let me live with them unless I was in therapy. So I got into therapy. Um, obviously I had a lot of emotions from, you know, that pulled me out of high school in my formative years. Um, it was hard. I did not have depression. Um, but I did have a lot of anger and a lot of sadness about what happened. So my therapist suggested medication. Now I had already, because, um, I had such a background in knowing about addiction. I already was kind of anti any kind of medication to um, deal with emotions. You know, I just did not think that was the way to go. But because they were psychiatric medications, I thought that that meant something was wrong with me. Something was wrong with my brain. And I'll never forget the day that they were suggested to me because I just broke down and cried because all my life I was fighting to prove that there was nothing wrong with me in my family. Um, and I strongly believe there was nothing wrong with me, but they were adamant something was because we didn't get along. Um, and it was like the moment that I felt like a professional was saying something was wrong with my brain. So it was really upsetting. But um, at first I was against them, but then I then I took them. I thought, you know, comply with them. She, you know, my therapist knows better. Um, and so for me, what, and, when I took and I just want to ask when, when they presented that to you as, you know, a medication, you know, there's something wrong with you and you need this medication. How did that make, I mean, did you start, I mean, was that a blow to your self-esteem? Did you start to think, you know, maybe my parents were right. Maybe, maybe I've been the problem the whole time. It was, it really hit me hard. I really had a hard time with it because Again, in my younger years, I had been sent to therapy so many times because my mom and I didn't get along. And almost every therapist said, this is a family problem. This isn't specific to your daughter. There were things happening that made me very uncomfortable in the family. It just, it it was not good. And um, even, you know, the first institution that I was put in, Um, they said, you know, my mom was like, she's on drugs because I had experimented with drugs and that could have gone a bad way, you know? So 
I'm not saying it was wrong that I that my mom did want me in a drug facility, um, but I definitely didn't have drug addiction. I mean, I had oh. done maybe like a month's worth of drugs. But anyway, so my fight my whole life was I'm okay. Like, it's not me. It's what's happening in this family. Like, what's happening in this family is not normal. So to then have a professional after all these years say you might need medication yeah, that was, that was very hard. And that took me down the road to always thinking when I struggled with my emotions or something was difficult, there must be something wrong with me. Like this is my brain. There must be something. Yeah. And some, and I don't know what your experience was like. Sometimes people will introduce medications and they'll say, uh, you know, it's, you, you may have a genetic problem or a chemical imbalance that they say it in different ways. Or other times they may say, you know, regardless of where this is coming from, I think this is going to help. Did did the pills come with a story about why you needed them? No, all that it was was this would be a crutch. This it's okay. not long. It's not permanent. It'll just be a crutch. It'll make things easier because you're carrying a lot of heavy stuff, and. I never questioned anything because I just didn't. I just felt like professionals knew better than me. If they were dangerous, if I would know, they would tell me. I just didn't question any of it. And when I took them, I, I was nervous the first at first. But since I didn't have any reaction, I didn't have any reaction at all. I had no reaction a week later. Then it was just, I just took them every day, all these years, like it was a vitamin. And I never associated anything that happened to me from there with possibly being my medication ever. And well, in all those go, years, I was going to say, before ahead. we go into that, were they helpful? You know, it's funny. I do remember when I first started taking them because I did have some anxiety and I do remember thinking, but I had to think about it. Hmm. I do think this is helping me with my anxiety, but after that, no, no, like I didn't feel like they really did much of anything in all those 30 years, but I didn't know they were dangerous and nobody suggested stopping. So I, I was like, they must be doing something. I want you to walk forward from, from that time. When was the first time you noticed that the Lexapro might be having a negative impact on your life? I didn't know until I went through the withdrawal. I okay. didn't know until I went through with the withdrawal and I said, this is what was happening to me before. I, I did not know. Even when I went through the withdrawal, I didn't even know I was in withdrawal. My girlfriend's a functional medicine therapist and or practitioner, and she said, you're in drug withdrawal. And I, was, I said, there's no such thing because I had stopped taking them because I just, you know, I, I was very health conscious. I did CrossFit every day. I lifted every day. I ride horses. I worked on a farm on the weekends. I was very, very health conscious. And I was having trouble with fatigue, a lot of fatigue. And so we were trying to ramp up my diet and things like that. So I just thought, I'm not taking these pills anymore. I'm just not doing it. And then I went into withdrawal pretty quickly, but I didn't know what it was. So I'm going to put a pin on, I guess, what happened before you went into withdrawal and the withdrawal process. And let's, let's pick up when you went into withdrawal. So how long, when did you... When did you go into withdrawal and, and why did you decide to come off the medication? So this was, again, February of 2021. I was yeah. 
I was having a lot of, and I always had trouble with during the medication. This is in hindsight. I've always had yeah. trouble with like kind of brain fog, fatigue, um, tired a lot. But I got up at three, four o'clock in the morning to go to the gym and do all the, you know, I was very, very active. So I always blamed it on that, but it kind of, it was getting worse. So we were just trying to sort out, was it in my food? I was doing an elimination diet, trying to just sort out why was this fatigue getting worse? Um, I was also in perimenopause and I was in a very stressful relationship at the time. So there were lots of reasons, you know, to put it on that. Um, so anyway, so I just stopped taking the medicine. And I didn't think, I didn't know anything about the risks. I just thought the only and, risk and would be. I just want to, I want to ask. So you decided to stop. Was it because you thought the medication might've been making you worse or you thought that it wasn't doing anything? What, what, I just oh. thought they didn't do anything. And I just did okay. not think being on drugs was healthy. I don't know why okay. it was that time. I think I had played, I had played around with it before throughout these decades that I was on it where I'd be like, I really don't need these. And I would drop down, I would drop my dose. And in hindsight, I know that I had reactions to it. But when I went through this withdrawal, because I didn't go back on, um, it was pretty horrific. And so taking me back, um, in my 30s, I was, you know, I'd been divorced. I had gotten engaged. I, I was well, late 30s. Let, let's, uh, let's talk about your withdrawal first. And then I want to bring you back to everything that you recognized in hindsight, because I think that's where this is going, that maybe going through the withdrawal caused you to investigate a bit more about the drug and notice some things in the past. So, yeah. so let, let's, let's go with the, the withdrawal in, in February now just to cover that. So how did you come off the medication and then what happened to you afterwards? So I, I did my version of tapering. I went, you know, the 2010-5 um, because I was on 20 milligrams and just kind of cut the doses. But I did it in like a week. Because mm -hmm. I thought the worst thing that would happen is I would go back to my baseline, which my baseline was never anything dangerous. I mean, I never, I just didn't think that there would be, that's the only risk I thought there was. Um, so I immediately was only sleeping three hours a night. And that's when I told my girlfriend, I said, for some reason, I'm only sleeping three hours a night. And she thought, what, what is going on? Like, you know, we were going through my diet again. And um, at the end of the conversation, I said, oh, by the way, I stopped taking my Lexapro. And she said, you're in withdrawal. And if, I just I thought, you're, there's no such thing. Like, I would never take I would never take a medication that I knew that you would be addicted to or dependent on. And um, there she gave me some information. And I immediately realized I'm in withdrawal. And I was went away on a trip and took the medication again. And immediately I was fine. And that's when I thought, oh my God, these drugs are really bad. So then I came back home and I just did it a second time. I just tapered off again because at that point I had read about it and I knew how dangerous it was. And um, I immediately um, went into severe withdrawal where I have, and still today, have the paresthesia all over my entire body. My gums burn, my face is numb all the time, my hands are numb all night long, I sleep every like two hours or every hour I wake up. Um, 
non-restorative sleep. I had like vertigo so bad that I'd wake up, my eyes were shaking in my head. Um, I ground my teeth until my tooth implant broke. Um, it, It was really severe, but and I had asked this, the prescribing psychiatrist because, um, not to complicate it, my doctor usually prescribed it because I could just go in and, you know, she just re-upped it every year. But there, at one point we were like, right before I stopped, we were talking about switching drugs, like maybe because I was going through this really terrible relationship and I was very upset. So it was like, why don't we try a different medication? So I think I tried something really quickly and I immediately had like side effects from it. And I just thought, no, I'm done. I'm done with these medications. And that psychiatrist was said, we can make you a cocktail of medications. If you'd like, we could add in, you know, a mood stabilizer. And I just thought this is not for me. This is, I got very lucky compared to a lot of people who go down that road. Um, but I said, no, I, I, I am not doing that. Um, but I did ask him, I said, how quickly can I come off these and be safe? Am, am I at risk for having seizures be- because of what was happening? I, you know, I tried to, during the withdrawal, you know, I was trying to live my life normally. I was really white knuckling through everything. Um, and I tried to like go out and have alcohol and I came home and I was jolting a week. I mean, like being electrocuted, not just like, popping awake, but my whole body was jolting. And um, I think I did that twice and thought, okay, this is, this is the alcohol. So I had asked him how safely I could come off these. And he, and he said, um, whatever you can handle. Well, you have to think about your audience when you say something so like a blanket statement like that, because that means something different to everyone. I rode horses. I took care of horses full time for a lot of my adult life. Like you ride and take care. If you're taking care of livestock, you do that. You do it with broken bones. You do it sick. You do it, you know, it doesn't matter. Like you learn how to navigate through pain, discomfort. Um, You know, I did CrossFit. I was lifting all the time. Like I knew how to navigate pain. So when you say whatever you can handle, I just thought like, okay, well, I'm not dying. I mean, this is awful. Like I couldn't, I, you know, I couldn't do anything social. I just, everything was burning all the time and it it was really bad. Um, but I just thought I was going to white knuckle it and get to the other side. Like the other side was going to happen and that just never came. But my first year I was still doing CrossFit because I could not, I could, I could not sleep and I could not sit still. So I wasn't doing the pacing but I couldn't, I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I, I, w- I was repainting my bedroom. I repainted the color six times in two weeks. And I mm. knew in my head, like I just, I, I just like the last time I just started to cry because I was mm. like, I can't, like, I can't stop. Like I can't, you know, like the color is not right. And I just knew it wasn't normal, but I would still go to CrossFit and I would be on fire, just burning and the, the agitation raging my dogs, their toenails tapping on the floor. Like it would, everything made me feel like I was going to explode. I could not watch TV. Uh, Mm -hmm. The tinnitus and sound was so loud. And so, and the brightness on the TV, um, you know, I, I still say to this day, like maybe having some bad acid trips, like prepared me to like get through this because that is what it's like only there are no drugs in you. So it's, it's very scary. 
Um, when when so, did you realize it wasn't going to get better? Well, so I don't think, I think I was always fearful that that wasn't going to get better. Um, but by the end of the year, I w- things had calmed. So I still did not feel good at all. I still was dealing with this every day. But I could have like a, a drink or two. I mean, it made me feel like shit. I don't even know why I would try it, but it made me feel sort of normal. And I wasn't being shocked. Um, I was kind of toned down. And I've had two major setbacks, the last one being the worst. And the first one was having COVID. So when I got COVID, it was very neurological. It was, I mean, I was coughing, but that took me out of the game. I could no longer, I, I could not get out of bed for almost a month. I was so sick and so fatigued and my head was just, I don't know how to describe it because brain fog isn't the word, but very, very sick. And that piece has never really gone away, whether that's another component or whether I hundred percent believe that would not have happened if I wasn't already neurologically injured. Um, because I've always well, me, had a me, really strong immune system. So let me ask you about that. At what point at what point did you realize that the Lexapro withdrawal had actually caused some brain damage? I knew right away. I I mean, <laughs> that this stuff does not happen to your brain. I guess and and I had already I had found the groups, I had found all the information. I immediately started following all the research and so I just knew. And and that those kinds of things don't happen in your brain without you being seriously injured. There's no question. And, and because of the continued things that have happened, it, there's, I, I, there's no question in my mind that it is not, that it, that it isn't a brain injury and obviously nervous system damage. How long has it taken you to recover from the Lexapro withdrawal and the neurological damage that it caused? I haven't. So, the having COVID, I was ne- that's when things started to unravel. Like I couldn't go to the gym anymore. I couldn't work with the horses anymore, which that is my life. That's everything that I live for. Um, so I had to stop doing that. Um, but I can't like, I keep trying, like I keep, I keep trying. Um, but then to this June in June or the end of May, um, I thought I had a bladder infection and I, I went to the ER, which I was like, Elaine, with everything that's happened to you now, you're going to the ER because you think you have a bladder infection, but it was really painful and I couldn't sleep. So I go in, I find out I have a kidney stone. So of course I'm like, oh God, (laughs) like, and I don't take any of the medication because I know how risky it is. And, um, they insist that I see a urologist. And by the time I left the ER, I was there for a really long time. I didn't take any of the pain medicine. Um, but by by the time I left, I didn't have any more pain. So, um, but I had, they told me to see a urologist. So I saw the urologist and at this time I still was sick. I still was struggling, but I didn't have like all the raging akathisia. Like that had kind of leveled out. It was there. I mean, I still was getting very like agitated, but it was kind of mellowed out. So, um, I saw the urologist and immediately he said, well, we're going to sign you up for surgery. (laughs) 
And I just said, like, can I pass this stone on my own? Like, it's really small. And uh, don't you want to get it out? That's what he said to me. And I said, well, yeah. But, and I said, but I have akathisia and I'm really nervous about the um, antibiotics because I, I knew that that was risky. Um, I mean, and I've been under anesthesia like six times in my life. I've never had a problem and I've taken antibiotics. I'm, I'm always really quick to heal from anything. Um, so he said, and he just stared at me blankly. And I just said, do you know what that is? Do you know what akathisia is? And he said, no. And I just knew there was no point in explaining anything. So, um, he was adamant about doing a surgery and I just kept saying, can I, I said, I have no pain. Like it's, it's been four days. I have no pain. Like, why do I need to have this surgery? I said, am I, am I at risk <clears throat> just not doing the surgery? and trying to pass this on my own. And he said, no, but if you end up in a lot of pain and suddenly want the surgery, you better be in queue for it because I can't just like wheel you in right away. So I left and then, you know, my doctor, she was insistent that, that I got this procedure. I said the same thing to her. I said, I don't have any pain. And she said, well, what if you pass the kidney stone already? And I said, that's impossible. From what everybody told me, it's excruciating pain you know, like the stories that I heard from that, you know, I was prepared for this horrible thing. Um, anyway, so I, again, was like, Elaine, don't be stubborn, do what the doctors are telling you, just do it. So I have the procedure. And that's when the worst of the worst happened. I mean, so the day after the procedure, I, I felt okay. So I felt like I was clear, you know, I thought I went under anesthesia, I'm good, like I feel all right. The next day, I was horrible in terms of like, I felt so sick and I was starting to go into that really dark despair that I hadn't experienced. I went to the ER again, sat there for 10 hours. They did all their normal tests to see if I was having a stroke. Cause you know, you tell them about all this paraphysia and all that stuff. They're like, is she having a stroke? Is she having a heart attack? Of course I pass all that and they sent me home. Well, the next day, this is June 2nd on my or june 3rd um i go into like the hysterical terror and i had not had that throughout my whole withdrawal the severe terror where i'm circling my house and just and nothing's happening i'm just in terror and then i immediately was like oh my god it's the antibiotics it's the antibiotics i google it and the antibiotic that they gave me even though i told everyone on my team i was worried about akathisia it's in my medical charts that my g that my gp has in there that i had drug induced akathisia and she still pushed me through to this the um antibiotic they gave me was cephalexin and if you it, there was a stage four um or a phase four fda uh test or research done that women of my mm -hmm. age taking cephalexin can get akathisia. Google search, you know, and I thought, this is what they gave me. Even though I was so, I, I was every single doctor, I said, don't give this to me. So that was the start of probably five it was five months before I've had any windows from that. It, and it took two and a half months before I wasn't pacing and in, in hysterical terror and like trying to go places and being so terrified. I felt like I had to run to my car, run home, run. And I kept thinking like, Elaine, nothing is happening. Nothing's happening. It was constantly talking myself off the ledge. 
but that one was the most scary because with all the suicidal ideation that I have and still really struggle with, the night that that akathisia was the worst and the worst terror, everything that was keeping me from doing anything drastic was gone. And I felt very impulsive. Like if I was in traffic, I probably would have walked out in traffic. And that terrified me. You know, I was thinking I need to jump out. I need to jump out of the window, like really like being on a bad acid trip. Only again, there's mm-hmm. no drugs there, you know, and that is scary to know that this kind of thing is happening in your brain and there's nothing like this is just your brain doing this. And will that go away? And will something happen to me again that's going to cause that to react like that again? Do you think you'll ever recover from the Lexapro withdrawal injury and, and the setbacks? I don't know. I don't like, because now, like after this last setback, I'm so terrified because before it was like, will I heal? Will I ever heal? And now it's like, will I get worse? Like I'm 54 years old. Like, how am I going to go through the rest of my life? Not needing an antibiotic and there's nobody to help you. Like I can't, obviously my doctors are going to protect me. How am I going to, how do you explain that to them? How do you explain to anyone that an antibiotic is actually life-threatening to me. I mean, they'll think you're crazy, you know, there's, and so I'm really scared of that. I'm really scared of like, you know, I'm single. I don't have like children. I don't have anyone to like advocate for me or look out for me. Like who protects me when I can't speak for myself and for like something like this that no one understands, like not even your doctors. It's really scary. So I just, you know, I I spend my time just trying to figure out how to not add terror on top of the terror, you know, but I don't know. Do you think you'll ever be able to work again? Well, I am working. So, and that's the thing, like for me, um, you know, I can work from home and I can go in the office and I have been pretty strong in that, um, like I can't work out a lot of times I can't work out at all. And sometimes I can, and I'm trying to ride horses again. And I've kept my job because thank, thank God, like I can work from home, but I have to do these things. Like the only way that I survive this is distraction. Like I am far worse when I'm at home, like doing nothing. Like I have to constantly keep my mind busy and I have to constantly, like I'm not pacing now, but I have to constantly be doing something and constantly be moving because you feel so much worse when you're sedentary. It's, it's hard to explain, but I know it's very common. I'd like to segue now to what happened to you earlier on in your life with Lexapro. Um, you'd mentioned, well, walk, walk me through earlier experiences in your life with Lexapro that had a big impact on you. So the biggest one that I didn't even realize what happened was when I went through withdrawal was in my, um, late thirties when I was ready to getting married for the second time. 
because it was later in life, we decided to try and have a baby because I was getting older. We didn't want to wait until I got married just because of the age thing. We, I got pregnant right away. I stopped taking the Lexapro again, not knowing the risks of it, but I, you know, again, I I did not want to, I, I did not want to feed my baby psychiatric meds, even though I didn't really know the risks of it. I just didn't think that was a good thing to do. And mm-hmm. so I just stopped cold turkey again. And I, again, immediately went into withdrawal and within like a couple of days, like super agitated or um, I couldn't eat. I had the food aver- aversion and I started getting a lot of that terror but I thought it was hormonal because it's normal when you're pregnant to like not want to eat and have a lot of food adversions. And I thought that's what that was. And I thought that the terror, because it was all around being a mom and having a baby and, you know, not wanting to repeat what I went through as a child, I just attributed it to that. Like I never, because I didn't know the risks of these drugs, because no one ever told me, I would have, I never associated the two. So I got really bad. And um, so I terminated the pregnancy, not once, but twice. Because, and I, again, I did not put two and two together. Once I had the procedure done, I went right back on the Lexapro, symptoms gone completely. Everything's back to normal. Um, so I just, I was like, it was definitely the hormones. It was definitely because now I'm not pregnant. Like it had to be that within a month, same thing that my poor fiance, you know, I said, I don't know what was wrong with me. I don't know why I was so scared. Like, I I really think I'm okay with this. I'm sorry. You know, same thing again. And that was devastating, but I never knew, you know, I sat in the hospital and my OBGYN who was doing the procedure, like I just remember him like hugging me and like, I couldn't even talk. I was like catatonic. I was so like upset. Like, why can't I do this? Like, why, why, like all women have children, like what is wrong with me? And the fact that like, you know, I was putting my fiance through this. It was, it was, it was horrible. And, and it was, you know, like I wanted that. And, um, you know, so, so recover from all that. Of course, my whole relationship fell apart after that, but it wasn't until I went through the withdrawal again in, in 2021, when all the symptoms came back and I was like, oh my God, this is what it was. This is the same thing again. Like, this is what it was. This is what caused that. And I just, you know, again, that's where all the anger comes in that like, we're being given these drugs and, you know, being promised that they're going to help us, but we're not being told any of the risks. And even if, you know, even if I had taken those medications, if I had known the risks and I, and I knew we had known what was happening when I, first of all, I wouldn't have cold turkeyed, but I would have known that was what was happening instead of blaming myself. And like, I would have been married with kids right now. It's just, it's just really, um, it's really hard to know, like, it's hard to accept the fact that um, this happened to me and this is happening to so people and without our knowledge or without understanding what's happening. 
Do you feel like taking Lexapro and going through the withdrawal robbed you of the opportunity to have children in your life? I, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have to say that I've always been very independent and I've always been very driven and I was very career minded. And, and at that time, um, very um, attached to the horses and the farm and that kind of stuff. So I never was a person that was like set on, like, I have to be a mom and I have to have children because there was always this piece in me that was like, how am I going to do the horses and do the kids? I knew I would be okay if I didn't have mm -hmm. kids. Um, I was always concerned about getting to this stage in my life and not having kids or not having like family support, which obviously is hitting me hard now with this whole withdrawal thing and going through it alone. Um, but yeah, a hundred percent that would have never, that would have never, it would have never happened if I never took the drugs. But even if I did take them, if I at least knew the truth about them, um, I would have handled it differently. You know, I, I would have understood what was happening. How, how has your perspective changed on antidepressant medications from, I guess, when you took it the first time to now looking back on what you've gone through? It's, I, it's so hard because I'm so against them and almost all of my friends are on them and their kids are on them. And I, I guess because I've learned so much about active, they really are versus how they're being presented to us. Um, but also the risks involved, especially with children. Um, I, I, I just think the risks are too high. Um, to add them to at least to, to my life, if I had the choice again, but, but again, I think my main thing with this is informed consent. Like that's where I stand with it because if you know all the risks, you know, because if I, if I talk to people about this, even doctors, they say, Oh, well, this is very rare. You're like the rare case that this happens to. And I now know that that's not, that's not the truth at all you know I, I think i think that people really need to know the risks i never knew that antidepressants were dependent forming i i never knew that any of this could happen on these drugs i i knew about opioids i knew about benzos you know i i knew about adderall i knew the risks of the drugs but never i just thought antidepressants were safe i mean we're giving them to our animals now it's really it's really scary. What advice would you give to someone who's thinking about taking Lexapro? <sighs> well, I, I mean, I, I don't think I'd really guide them either way, but I would definitely tell mm -hmm. them what happened to me and what the risks, risks are. I do have a friend who's been on Lexapro for probably like 10 years and is going through some pretty severe stuff with her, her kids and really traumatic things. And, having some trouble with her health and she knows what I've been through. And she actually asked me about tapering. Should she start tapering? And honestly, right. I told her, no, I told yeah. her, no, you know, and I don't think she expected that from me, but I just said, I said, a lot of people come off these and have no problems, but a lot of people come off and have very life changing problems. And 
I just don't think that like with everything that's happening in your life, it's worth it. I said, you might not have withdrawal at all. And she said, oh, I know I would because I've not been able to get a prescription and I've had symptoms. And I said, I wouldn't because you can't always backtrack. Like once you get in it, you can't always go back. Like you can't always backpedal. And I could have never raised children going through this. And as much as it has been really scary to go through this alone, I can't imagine having like a family and kids having to deal with this too. Do you have a message for anyone out there listening who's going through severe protracted withdrawal injury from antidepressants like Lexapro? This is where it gets really hard. Because I tend to be like a helper and a wanting to save people. And I've been in support groups, obviously, my whole life. And I'm usually really good at that stuff. I'm usually the motivator. I'm usually the one that is like, well, do this and do that. And this will help. This is really hard. Because again, I'm, you know, I've worked with Chris Page. I've worked with Angie Peacock. I'm in her Zoom group, support group. And the only thing that I can ever distract, distract, distract. It's all you can do. There is nothing. I don't have any, I don't have anything that I can say, this will help make it easier. This will lighten the load some, this will help your symptoms. There isn't anything. And I've had someone in real trouble who's called me a lot, frantically, that I try to support. But I finally said at the end of the day, there's no one that's going to save any one of us. There's no one that can save me. I could go to Angie and call her in complete distress, but I know she has no answer for me that's going to make me better. I know she doesn't have a remedy. I know doctors don't have a remedy. Nobody has a remedy. It's time. And it, it's we are the only ones that are going to cure ourselves. And it's really hard. Um, I think find support where you can get it, but that's tricky. I mean... I don't really have it. I have a couple friends who have stuck around. The other ones aren't around anymore. Have you known people who have taken their life because of protracted antidepressant? Yes, way too many. And that's probably five in the last. Now, these aren't people that I'm like super close to, but in the community um, and in some of our groups. Um, but what happened when I went through this last setback in June um, was really scary because there was a doctor in the groups who had been in the groups the same time frame as me. So like our connections were close. Like I've been almost three years. She'd been in three years. She had gotten her akathisia kind of toned down to where she was sort of leveled out, still struggling. But OK, same as me. Like I still was really struggling, like couldn't do a lot. but but I was kind of leveled out. I could socialize a little bit. Um, And then she, so then I had to take my antibiotic and had my procedure and went into that horrific, very suicidal terror state, which is terrifying to me because I've never, ever been like ever been suicidal. Um, But then this doctor in July, so a month later, had to take penicillin and she took it and then killed herself. So it was all running so parallel to exactly what was happening to me that 
that just terrified me that that's it's terrifying i had to x myself out of a lot of groups that talk about that stuff a lot because it's it happens a lot do you feel like that could have happened to you absolutely and i'm still very scared of it i'm scared of it because like i don't get mammograms i will not get a colonoscopy i will not like none of that because I am, my blood turns to ice when people talk about, oh, I had to take an antibiotic for my tooth because it means something. It's life threatening to me at this point. And I don't know, like, will my brain heal enough that down the road I can take an antibiotic? I don't know. But this last episode really scared me. And no one's ever going to understand that. I'm so terrified of something sending me to that place again because I still wave in and out of it, not to that extreme, but it's still there that when I put medications on horses at the barn, I won't even stick my hands in it because I'm afraid of like absorbing it. And that's, I am not a germaphobe. I'm not typically scared of anything. And now I'm afraid to touch anything. I, I cannot, I cannot express how terrifying having your brain just go offline like that. It's, it's really scary. Elaine, is there anything that we haven't covered which you which you want to share with the audience uh, who's listening? No, I, I just I wish that we could get the word out a little bit more. It's hard to kind of live in this little bubble where you can't talk about this without people looking at you like you have two heads or that there's something very wrong with you. I think it's hard for people to understand that you know, this happened three years ago. Why are you worse now? Why are you still struggling? So I, you know, you just try to present yourself as normally as you can. Um, I just think, I just think time is what heals brain injuries. I think for me, it's sunlight, nutrition, sleep, which none of us get. I mean, that's just doesn't happen. Um, movement, which is why, you know, I mean, the pacing just kind of like overrides the real hard stuff, but just it's why I, but it's why I try to still go to the gym. I can't really do much, but to keep myself moving, to try to stimulate my own serotonin, to try to keep, you know, the blood flow in my brain to help bring nutrients to my brain to help it heal. All the things you would do for brain injury is kind of what I look at in terms of healing. I mean, I don't really have any, there's no quick, there's no quick fix. I mean, and lastly, it's just not doing anything that's going to re-injure it, which is going to be challenging. I mean, I just pray nothing happens where I need any kind of procedures going forward. Elaine, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for all you're doing. I, I, I really do appreciate it. I watch all of your interviews and they're very helpful. I just, we need more of you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, 
come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.